0: I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, as we continue on in our study of this little Old Testament book. Today we're going to be looking at the last half of chapter 3. But just as a reminder of the context of what's happening in chapter 3, I'm going to begin, I'm going to read the entire chapter. So we'll be looking at Jonah 3. We'll be focusing in on verses 5 through 10, but I'll read. The entire chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. And we pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes. And that you would teach us what we need to be taught from it. Help us to see what we need to see. Help us to believe what we need to believe. Give us a model of what true repentance looks like. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine a scenario with me. The Lord raises up a PCA pastor and puts it on the heart of that PCA pastor to travel around the world To Moscow, Russia, to preach the gospel for three days on the streets of Moscow. On the first day, this PCA pastor preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, on the first day he's preaching it, word comes that Vladimir Putin has been converted and has been baptized. The Kremlin and the Politburo sends out a directive to the city of Moscow that the state-mandated atheism is no longer to be followed, and instead the city is to repent of their sins and call out to the Lord God Almighty for His grace and mercy as He's revealed in the Bible. And you're saying in your minds right now, Yeah, right that will never happen. But what is it inside of us that says that could never happen? What, what is it inside of us that even as I was laying out that scenario, you were saying, and I was saying too, boy, this is a hypothetical. What is it inside of us that can't conceive of something like that happening? I mean, after all, it happened in the days of Jonah and actually what happened to the city of the kingdom of assyria was a far greater a far greater nation kingdom than russia what we see here in jonah chapter 3 is nothing short of miraculous god being at work to bring an entire pagan city to belief and to repentance and as we read the account of what happened These pagan people of Nineveh actually give us a model of what biblical repentance looks like. And not only is it a model, it's also a motivation for us who are God's people. So today I want us to answer a few questions about what what repentance is. So first of all, we'll talk about what biblical repentance looks like. Secondly, does our repentance... Make God change his plans. And then lastly, we'll consider how having the opportunity to repent is actually God's grace to us. So first of all, what does biblical repentance look like? And we get this model of it in verses 5 through 9. And one of the very first things that we see is that it starts with a recognition that God is God and I am not. That God is the one who knows the truth, and I am the one who submits to it. Biblical uh, biblical repentance starts with the recognition of who God is and a belief in what He says about me, it starts with a sense of conviction for my sin. That's essentially what we see in verse 5. We read that after Jonah went into the city and proclaimed the judgment of God coming on the city of Nineveh. What do we see in verse 5? The people of Nineveh believed God. They heard the word of the Lord that came through the mouth of Jonah that said judgment is coming and they believed that it was true. They understood that the judgment that was coming, they deserved Now, they didn't understand all of the details of who God is and His law and all of those things. But God uh, has so revealed in His creation and He has written His law on the hearts of everyone such that when these people heard that judgment was coming, they believed it was right. They had a conviction of their sin. They knew that they were guilty. They knew that they were rightly convicted because of not being obedient to the one Lord God Almighty. That's the first step in repentance. It is acknowledging our guilt before the Lord. It is saying, God, I hear you say that I am guilty, and I believe it's true. But, if we know that we're guilty before the Lord, but that reality just makes us more strident, or more obstinate, or more indifferent, that's not leading us to the path of repentance. So the second step of repentance is not only becoming convicted that, are, that we are sinners and that we, uh, that we sin. It is, it is having a true humility. Someone who is truly repentant is humble. You know, humility is not really a character quality that we think of or expect from our governing leaders. So every once in a while when you hear a story about a governing leader being humbled... It's an interesting story, and I heard one of those stories this past week. It's a story about Cory Booker, who is a Democrat politician in New Jersey. He was one of the people who ran for the uh, Democrat nominee for president in 2020. And he actually tells the story himself. It's It's a story about when he was the mayor of Newark, and he had a driver that would take him where he needed to go, and so he asked his driver to take him to McDonald's. Apparently, Cory Booker has a deep... Interest in McDonald's French fries. Now, as I say that, you're starting to smell McDonald's French fries right now, and that was something that Cory Book- Booker really enjoyed, that really uh, savored those McDonald's French fries. So he had his driver go through the drive-through, and they pulled up, and he he put in a double order of French fries McDonald's French fries. He got the bag that came through the window, and he. Opened it up, you know, the grease on the bottom of it, and he opened it up, and the smell of those French fries just wafted into his face, and he was so eager to get into those French fries. The driver began to pull out of the drive-thru, and as he did, Booker looked to the side and saw a homeless man digging through the trash bin. So he told the driver to stop, and he rolled down the window. He said, hey, are you all right? You don't look like you're doing too well. Are you okay? The man looked over at the car and he said, I'm hungry. Well, that was the moment of truth for Cory Booker because here he was holding this delectable delectable bag of french fries, what he had been looking forward to for so long and in his hands, smelling so good, just inches away from his mouth. But he knew what the right thing to do was. So he folded up his bag of french fries and he passed it through the window to the homeless man. Now, Cory Booker was telling the story and the story could have ended right there. <laughs> because if the story ended right there, Cory Booker looks pretty good. He, here's a politician showing compassion on uh, someone who is poor, someone who is in need. But as you might guess, the story didn't end there. The homeless man thanked him for the food. And then he asked him, Do you have any socks? Cory Booker said, no, we don't have any socks, sorry, and rolled the window up and told the driver to head out. The driver put the car in park, reached down and took off his shoes, took off his socks, and gave the socks through the window to the homeless man. And Cory Booker said he was slain. He said, I live three blocks from that McDonald's and I've got drawer A drawer full of socks that I haven't even worn before. And here was my driver showing how shallow my compassion for those in need were. Now what's great about that story is that Cory Booker Booker told it about himself. It's an unusual thing. Someone humbling himself, telling a story about how they are humbled, at least in that moment. But I want you to notice that that's what the king of Nineveh does here in the story. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king of Nineveh gets up, he arises. He arises from his throne. That was his seat of power, his seat of authority. And he got off of it. And he took off his royal robes, his his garments of royalty, his garments that showed his importance and his status. And he covered himself instead with the clothes of mourning and grief. Sackcloth. And then he went and sat in some ashes. Kings don't do this. For a king in the ancient world To do what this king is doing would call into question his sanity. It would call into question his fitness to be in the office that he was in. Unless the Lord God Almighty was at work bringing this man humility. Bringing him to repentance. That's the second step of of repentance. It is not just being convicted of our sin, but it's being humbled. Along with humility, we see a third aspect of genuine repentance, and that is a genuine sorrow for sin. Again, look back at verse 5 and 6. The people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then the king modeled what that should look like for them. A fast was declared. Sackcloth was put on. That was rough coarse material that only poor people or people who were in a season of grief and lament wore. And notice that the participants of the season of lament and sorrow for their sin, the the participants were extensive. Look at what it says in verse 7 and 8. The, Halfway through verse seven, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. This isn't just a small group. This isn't just a church gathering together to have a a, a time of sorrowing for their sin. This was the entire city and not just the people, but even the animals were being used to help declare their sorrow for their sin the sorrow of the sin for the people of the city. And I want you to notice that it's it's not just a sorrow for the consequences of their sin. This is a sorrow for their sin itself, that they had sinned against the Lord God Almighty, that they had gone against his word and offended him. It reminds us of what we read uh, the apostle Paul write in the second letter to the Corinthians, he he's written some pretty difficult things to the people in Corinth. And then he goes on and says this in chapter seven, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What Paul is talking about here is a godly grief. It is a grief, it is a sorrow for sin against the Lord. It's not just a sorrow for the consequences of sin, the problems that come because we sin, but it's recognizing that our sin is against the Lord God Almighty and having a sorrow for it. So repentance involves conviction of our sin. It involves getting humble. It involves being sorrow, sorrowful for our sin. But a fourth part of biblical repentance that we see here is a turning away from our sin. It's another crucial aspect of what repentance is. Earnestly saying no to our sin and turning away from it. We see that in verse 8 back in Jonah. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Isn't it interesting that one of the main things that the Assyrians were known for is the very thing that he calls out for them to turn away from, violence. Turn away, he says. Turn away from the violence. Turn away from your evil ways. J.I. Packer says that repentance is a change of mind resulting in a change of life. A change of mind that results in a change of life. That is, that the thoughts and the words and the actions that we have that are wrong and sinful must be changed. That's part of what repentance is. It is to turn away from our sins. Think of it this way. As we saw at the beginning of the book of Jonah, the Lord called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah decided to go in exactly the opposite direction. But the Lord humbled Jonah... And he brought Jonah to a sense of a conviction for his sin. And Jonah seemed to be genuinely sorrowful for his wrongdoing. And then what did Jonah do? He turned around and went the opposite direction of what he had been doing and trying to get away from the Lord. He turned to go the way that the Lord wanted him and called him to go. But if Jonah had prayed the prayer that he did in chapter 2, and then the fish Vomited him back onto land, but he didn't go to Nineveh, that's not repentance. True biblical, genuine repentance involves the turning away from our wrongdoing. It means stopping looking at websites that we shouldn't be looking at. It means stop talking badly and gossiping about others. It means stop lying to your parents. It means stop being greedy and not generous. It is recognizing the wrongdoing in our life, whether in our thoughts, our words, or our actions, and turning away from it. There is a fifth and final aspect that we see here of what biblical repentance looks like from this passage, and that it's not only turning away from our sin, it's turning back to the Lord. Again, look at what we read about in verses 8 and 9. Halfway through verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And just before that he says, "Let let them call out mightily to God. It wasn't just a call to turn away from their violence and to turn away from the evil ways that they were following. It was to call out to God. It was to turn to God and call out mightily to him and ask for his grace and mercy. This was a a renewed commitment to the Lord, if you will. So this is the picture of what biblical repentance looks like. It is coming to a conviction of our sin. It is being humble. It is sorrowing for our sin, being grieving for our sin. It's turning away from it and it's turning to the Lord. But before we move on, we have to ask ourselves this question. Does this picture of biblical repentance characterize your life? Those who call themselves Christians are not perfect, far from it. We're sinners, and we will be until either we die or Jesus comes back. So the question is what do we do with our sin when we become aware of it? When the Lord brings our sin to our eyes so that we see it and we recognize what it is, what do we do at that very moment? Do we follow these steps? This is not something that we do just once in our life when we become a Christian. It's not something we do just once a week when we gather to worship. This is something that is to characterize our life every day. This is a rhythm that should be the very rhythm of our lives day in and day out. So does your life, is your life characterized by these steps? Secondly, does our repentance change God's plans? Verse ten of our passage today has caused quite a bit of controversy and confusion in church throughout history. There have been there, there's been lots and lots and lots of ink that has been spilled trying to explain what verse ten is saying and what it's not saying. And there are really two kind of main questions that come up because of verse ten. The first is related to the word that we have translated at the, toward the second half of verse 10, that God relented. Some of your translations may actually have the word repented. That God repented of the disaster that He was going to bring upon the people. And there, that's where the question comes up. If repentance is turning away from our sin, from our wrongdoing, and turning to what is right and good, then how could God repent? God doesn't sin. He's incapable of sin. So how can we say that God repents? Well, the ESV translation, I think, actually provides us the answer and how they translated this by using the word relent instead of repent. There are actually two different Hebrew words that are being used here in verse 10 for this idea of turning away and turning towards something else. If you look at the beginning of verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way. Now, that's one of the Hebrew words that they turned from their evil way. And the sense of that Hebrew word is exactly what they say there in the ESV, that you're turning away from something that is wrong, something that is not right, and you're turning toward what is good and what is right. But when we come to the second half of verse 10, where it says God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do, that's actually a different Hebrew word. And it's a Hebrew word that is rightly translated as relented. It has a sense of being moved inwardly to pity. Being moved to turn away from a harsh intention or judgment. So I think that answers the first question. God relented. He was moved inwardly. And so he turned away from the harsh judgment on Nineveh. But that actually raises a second question, doesn't it? And the second question is, well then, does repentance actually change God's plans? Because it does kind of seem like that's what happens here. God announced His plan to judge Nineveh. The people responded by believing God and repenting. And then God relented. It sure seems like God is responding to the repentance by changing his plans by changing his decree. So, does repentance make God change his plans? I would say the answer is both no and yes. No, our repentance doesn't cause God's eternal decrees to be changed and we should be so thankful that it doesn't. Think of Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Or James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's eternal decrees, His eternal plans can't change. God knows all things and He is outside of time and He brings everything to pass exactly like His perfect will has decreed. For God to change or for His perfect plan to change would mean that He's not God. So no, our repentance doesn't make God change His eternal plans and we are glad that that is the case. But there's also a sense in which we can say, Yes, there is something that changes and we should be thankful that it does. God's eternal decree doesn't change. It's perfect eternally. But the Lord can certainly decree to use means to accomplish his purposes. The Lord decreed that Jonah would go to Nineveh, that he would proclaim God's judgment on the city And that the people would respond by belief and repentance and then he would not bring judgment on them. That was the Lord's plan. He used the means of the proclamation of the judgment to bring his plan of their repentance to fruition. It reminds us of the prophet Jeremiah and something that uh, he recorded in chapter 18 of his book. It's actually the Lord speaking. He says, if if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Or Hugh Martin in his commentary put it this way. It was wicked, violent, unrighteous, atheistical, proud and luxurious Nineveh which God had threatened to destroy. A city sitting in sackcloth and ashes, humbled in the depths of self-abasement and appealing as lowly suppliants to his commiseration. A Nineveh like that, that Nineveh he never threatened. That Nineveh he visited not with ruin. And he never said that he would. God's plan all along was to bring Nineveh to repentance. And when they did, he relented. He he turned away from the judgment that had been proclaimed by Jonah. And all of this leads us to our final point. To consider how God giving us the opportunity of repentance is actually his grace to us. I think we can see that in a few different ways. The first is this. The opportunity to turn away from what is not good for us is God's grace to us. Repentance is God giving us the opportunity to turn away from that which is harmful to us. That which will not go well for us. That which is not good for us. Our sin and our wrongdoing. And He didn't have to give us that opportunity. The very first time that we sinned, he would have been just to wipe us off the face of the earth. He could have let Jonah die in the stormy sea. He didn't have to rescue him. He didn't have to use him to then go to Nineveh and proclaim the truth. But he was gracious. God is gracious to give his people the opportunity for repentance. And especially so when we keep giving in to the same sins again and again. In his grace and his mercy, he gives us, he brings us to repentance. Helps us to turn away from our sin and turn back to him. He welcomes us as a father because of the gospel, because of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord not only makes us his people, but he gives us a path back to reconciliation with him when we have offended him and his righteousness. That is grace. Repentance is God's grace. Also, when we think about the fact that the threats, the the warnings, the discipline, they're all in the context of being in a relationship with the Lord. When the Lord gives his people warnings and threats, when the Lord disciplines us because of our sin, he is doing that as our heavenly father. He's doing that in the context of us being in a relationship with him. Think about how the author to the Hebrews puts it. A father disciplines those he loves. He loves his children. He's in relationship with his children. And so he disciplines those he loves. So as we face warning, as we face discipline, we have to be reminded of the fact that it's coming to us from a father who loves us perfectly and who wants what is best for us. It's coming from a father who desires to be reconciled to us when we alienate ourselves from him with our sin. It's coming from a father who is gracious and merciful, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's why Paul says in Romans 2, it is God's kindness to us that leads us to repentance. Thirdly and lastly, we see repentance as God's grace to us because repentance shows true biblical repentance, shows that our faith is real. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people over the years who come to me and say something along these lines. I'm really struggling to believe that I can actually be a Christian because of all the sin that I have in my life. I give in to this sin again and again and again, and I can't believe that God would actually consider me His child. Doubting their status with the Lord. Doubting their salvation because of their sin. And I ask them, Well, what do you do with your sin? Do you repent of it? And we talk about what repentance looks like, what biblical repentance looks like. And ask, do you do that? And they say, well, well, yeah, I do that. I do that all the time because I'm sinning all the time. And my response to them is that unbelieving people don't practice biblical repentance. Our genuine biblical repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It shows us that we are a child of God as the Lord reveals our sin to us, brings us to a conviction of it, humbles us, gives us a sorrow for it, gives us the power to turn away from it and gives us a desire to come back to him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit and the child of God. So it reminds us that faith, our faith is real. So, yes, be convicted of your sin, be humbled, be sorrowful and grieve over your sin. Turn away from it and turn back to the Lord in faith and do that over and over and over again. And as you do know that you are a beloved, justified child of God and then go out and live like who you are. I want to finish the sermon today and transition to the Lord's Supper in a little bit of a different way. After taking some time today to reflect on what biblical repentance looks like, and certainly and especially as we transition to partaking of the Lord's Supper together, I think it's appropriate if we take a few moments in silent reflection and prayer uh, to think about repentance in our own lives. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take just a few minutes uh, of silent reflection reflection and prayer. And I'm going to ask you to do two things during this time. One... Take a few moments and reflect, where are the areas in my life where I need to repent? And then secondly, repent. Actually go through the steps of repentance. So we'll do that for a few minutes, and then after a few minutes I'll come up to the Lord's Supper. And we will transition to the Lord's Supper. We read in the Gospel of Matthew that as Jesus and the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day day when I drink it new with you, In my father's kingdom. Spending some time thinking about repentance. And then actually going through a season of reflecting on our own lives. Of where it needs to be done and doing it. We need to be reminded of the gospel as well. We need to be reminded of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So as we come to this table, we're so thankful that that that's what this table points us to. It points us to the Lord giving His body for us and shedding His blood for us. That our sin was put on Him and He paid for it in full through His death and resurrection And as a result of Him conquering death and living a life of perfect love and obedience to His Father, we get His righteousness credited to our accounts. That's what this table points us to. So as we repent, we repent as those who know the good news of the gospel and who celebrate it as we come to this table. This table doesn't belong to Trinity Presbyterian Church, it doesn't belong to the PCA, it belongs to Jesus. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a lover of Jesus, you are in Christ, you have put your faith in Him, and you are baptized and have connected yourself with a church that believes that the gospel is true, then as these elements come around to you, eat and drink, be reminded of the good news of the gospel, Be reminded and be encouraged by the work of the Holy Spirit taking what we're doing at these very moments and using it to build us up and spiritually nourish us. And be thankful for the Lord's grace in your life. Let's pause before we partake and thank Him for giving us this means of grace. Our Father, we do thank You. Thank You for the ways that You tell us the gospel. We thank You for Your Word. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. And as we partake of it now, we pray that you would be at work through the work of your spirit. As we come in faith, that you would help us, Father, that you would strengthen us. Help us to believe the gospel. Help us to be empowered to go out and to live as you want us to live. Pray you would do all this for your glory, first and foremost, but also for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.